Want to be a part of the conversation? Then let us know on the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's news talk, TNT Radio. This is Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's news today's talk, TNT. Welcome back to the second hour of Weekends here, the Sunday edition on TNT Radio. Really hope you enjoyed the last hour with author Reb Bradley dealing with the most important issues at home, whether it be with your wife, your husband, your children, and raising them right in a world that is changing so quickly. We don't even know what we don't even know, and I found that Reb's insights were profound. And if you get a chance, you can watch or listen back, whether you go through our Rumble channel uh, or you can just go directly to tntradio.live and download from your favourite presenter list. Uh, You can look at the audio or the video podcasts that are now up there on the page. Well, in this hour, we're going to take a different direction. We're headed back to Australia to meet a guest who was involved with the Liberal Party for many, many years and is involved with and fighting against political corruption. So much so that he was expelled from the party. This may or may not be directly linked, but for taking the former Prime Minister to court. That is a really interesting story. But of course, in politics, all seems to be fair in love and war. And we're going to get into the detail as we explore modern politics in Australia, political cowardice, etc., and wondering where all the good leaders have gone. Well, Matthew Kamenzilli grew up in Sydney's heartland, surrounded by family and the local community. Inspired by his father's love of building, Matt started a software company for the building industry in 2002 from his bedroom. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? His vision has grown into a multi-million dollar business. Matt also served on the state executive of the New South Wales Liberal Party and has spent a lifetime effort fighting corruption, as I said, in the party. He's also a political commentator, entrepreneur, and the co-founder of the members' rights movement of the Liberals. He was expelled from the party after suing former Prime Minister Scott Morrison to ensure fairness in the pre-selection process and that the Australian people were given a voice. Matt Camazzoli, welcome to Weekends. Jason, thanks for having me. Terrific to have you on the show, Matt, uh, and I'm delighted that we can uh, talk about some of the issues that um, the detail and the nuances I like to talk about uh, in understanding a bit more about uh, party politics, as obviously the Liberal Party, ever since the days of Menzies, has pretty much been the natural party of government in Australia, perhaps only for the window of the Hawke-Keating period, where I remember commentators, perhaps it was George Megalogenis, who said that the Labor Party has now become the natural party of government, but that's not really the case. How did you get involved? in Liberal Party politics? Well, look, I used to get very, very, very upset with, um, you know, things like the car government and, uh, you know, wasn't a, a great fan of them. And I was a big fan of people like John Howard. And uh, I've, I've always been very interested in politics, you know, political philosophy. I was always interested in things like political narratives, um, you know, read the paper when I was quite young as a child. And I just, I, I, I don't know, I was drawn to it. I, I feel like it's, it's, it's where the great contest of ideas is. It's where we, I think, uh, the real work is done in, in, in shaping, um, society. And, you know, I've always taken a strong interest in being a good actor, I think, in that space. And yeah, since I was, since I was quite young. So a, a you know, family member said, you should, you should consider joining. So I did. And uh, here I am expelled. <laughs> it, it's uh, it, it seems to be that that's how it works, whether a parent or someone inspires you to take a look. My, my own personal story was 
I'll never forget it. My dad picking me up from school one day in, in December of 1982, and he had the Sun and the Mirror newspapers as he bought every afternoon the afternoon papers, and he pointed to the headline that indicated that Bob Hawke had uh, become the leader of the Labor Party after Malcolm Fraser had called the election. And I said, I'm, I'm a, like a uh, probably a 10, just almost 11-year-old kid. I said, Dad, what does any of this mean? Because my whole life I'd only ever heard that Malcolm Fraser was the Prime Minister. I was born in 72, 75, Fraser was um, elected. That's all I ever knew. And he says, well, Bob Hawke's going to become the Prime Minister. And, of course, when it happened in March of, um, of 1983, I thought he was an oracle. But it changed me because I had that inherent understanding that my father taught me something in the moment that be that came true based on the understanding of the news of the day. And, and like you found at Riverton, went through high school and studied Keating and the J curve and economics and just thought, wow, this is real that we actually have an influence over entire society here by how we choose to do business at home and away. And, it, and it's something in your maturing teenage years when you're still asking all the great questions, how can I make a contribution into society. So it's wonderful that um, that this is, is, a, is a common thread that certain people get inspired in different ways. Can I ask you, Matt, um, growing up, did you have any political perhaps heroes uh, that you looked at and thought, wow, that is someone that inspires me? Sure. Um, look, I, I think um, my grandmother was a great fan of, of Robert Menzies. Um, I think uh, I, I picked up some of those leanings, I think, from her. Um, and I think, yeah, I was, I was sort of quite young still when, uh, when John Howard was, uh, was elected, I was still in my teenage years and, and I, uh, I quite, I quite liked what, what John Howard was about. I think he spoke to those sort of small government, um, you know, getting, getting people to do the best they can for themselves and having the government out of the way of that was, I always thought was what I always thought was best. So, you know, sort of that, that was, was certainly there and. I have to say, I found Paul Keating probably one of the funniest, uh, funniest people in, in, I think Australian life at the time, um, when he was around and he was quite amusing. I didn't always like his politics, but I found him very, very funny. And I, I have to say, you know, when he told, uh, that journalist to get a real job, I mean, that was hilarious. Like he's, he said some funny things, you know, and I, I mean, I've come to know a lot of journalists since then. And I think it is a real job. It's a busy, difficult job, but he certainly had a different view at the time. Yeah, indeed. Indeed, it's uh, watching the Keating years of many of us again growing up, it sort of became homework that we would watch Keating in Parliament, you know, dish it up to the various different Liberal leaders of the time. And uh, one of my favourite scenes was when John Hewson, again in, in question time, called, why won't the Prime Minister call an early election? And that was one of the famous responses, of course, when Keating looked at him and he said, because John, I want to do you slowly. Uh, and, and that has become part of political folklore. But it also proved that uh, his approach and style in Parliament kind of kind of defined new parliament house and the behavior since then the mannerisms the discussions the commanding situations uh, of how power is um is used in australia but interestingly um matt that you you wrote an article in the spectator talking about political cowardice and that is a big departure from the years of the howards and the keatings and the hawks that seem to command australia what's happened in our country in the prevailing years since that great era look i think we've gotten into this boring bland middle space where the path of least resistance seems to be about the only path there is and i think people are sick and tired of that as well i think the general public want to see more from their elected representatives um, and in particular more from the leadership in that space um, than just going along with whatever the you know the the, the lobbying class 
is is banging on about at the time. And I think what we need to really look at is in this, what is political lobbying? It's not just people walking the hallways of parliament, right, and um, knocking on parliamentarians' doors and asking them to do things, which does happen. Uh, they're paid to do that by various groups, whether they be, you know, corporations or others. But but it goes deeper than that. It's it's advertising. It's messaging and media strategies. It's all of these things to put huge amounts of pressure down on on those in the political class. You almost can feel sorry for them, just the amount of pressure they come under. But what we've also seen now is those those lobbyist classes are reaching into the political parties as well. So the pressure is coming from both inside of the organisations, but also outside of the organisation, outside of their political party. And they're sort of surrounded by this ring of almost um, you know, vested interest groups and lobbyists who really push them around. And it's sometimes easier just to go along with it. And where the cowardice kicks in is that, you know, I don't think that the general public, when they vote for their leader, when they vote for their MP, are thinking about the business of a lobbyist or the business of a corporation or anyone else. They're thinking about what's in the best interest of Australia and Australians and their neighbours and themselves. And that's who the politicians need to get that courage back out and start looking at who it is they're there to represent and who votes for them. I can't understand how they're not terrified of the electorates that they are supposed to represent, but they seem to be more terrified of all these other vested interests. And 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 the cowardice is very very clear. What is it? It's the you know it's it's almost like it's just this this weak source. Um, you know, we we don't have those great visionary thinkers, people who are prepared to put themselves at risk, people who are prepared to put their political careers at risk, people who are prepared to give of themselves a little bit to sort of steer that narrative and do what's right for Australia and Australians. And that's where we need to go, or we're in a lot of trouble. Indeed. And, and this is a, I think we've sort of hit a, a line in the sand here, Matt, that I want to explore a little bit more. And again, I'm going to circle back to the, we, we look at the period from uh, Fraser in 75 to Howard in in, in um, 07, when Rudd defeated him. That was a period of 32 years. We had four prime ministers. So we went from Fraser to Hawke to Keating to Howard, four in 32 years. Since 2007 to 23, we're at 16 years. We're at seven changes of prime minister. So one might say, well, the landscape's change and the flip-flopping continues. But you have to look at it and think that these political warriors of the time also had to deal with elections every three years, but somehow were able to maintain power in that position. What do you think is the discrepancy here in this process? Is perhaps a, a, a more um, uh, volatile economy? Is it more influence from overseas? Or is it the fact that these earlier leaders had real maps, plans, visions and stuck to them? Look, I think it's a matter of conviction. I think whether you love Bob Hawke or you didn't, Paul Keating or you didn't, John Howard or you didn't, I don't remember the Fraser years myself personally, but you know, from what I've read of those those times, um, they had an agenda, they had views and values. And particularly with John Howard, you know, no matter what was going on, you almost always knew what John Howard was going to do. You weren't ever caught by surprise. Um, when, you know, Morrison's around, we he comes in holding a lump of coal up in Parliament and then doing net zero. I mean, you know, everything's it's almost like it becomes this 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 vapid circus act of trying to please people. It's almost like that Josh Thomas please like me episode of please like me. Um, uh, you know, the polling says that you want this or you want that, where you know, great leaders take the public on a journey. They I think we've seen Peter Dutton do a little bit of this, and I think Peter Dutton's doing more and more of it as time goes on. 
But what Peter Dutton was about with The Voice, for example, he just came out and said, look, I, I, I don't understand this. Can you please give me an understanding of what this voice is going to do for people? And then he took people on a journey with him of, of exploration. And you knew that Peter Dutton was concerned about it and you knew why he was concerned about it. And I think that other people saw that and thought, well, if he's concerned, maybe I should be concerned. And that's what leadership's all about. The problem we have is that, you know, Political parties are busy worrying about what the headline might be, when in reality what they should be worrying about is how they're going to steer those headlines. And that's what we need. We need people who are prepared to stand up, stand on principle, stand on conviction, have a, have a, have a, have a prescribed set of beliefs, and then almost do everything through the lens or the frame of what those beliefs are, and then at least we'll know what we're going to get. So you'll give people a chance. I think Australians will give you a chance if they can see that there's some common sense behind what it is that you're trying to achieve. And we're just not seeing that at the moment. And that's why it's been a big circus. It's all been about, you know, individuals and their personalities and their ambitions. And that's a pathetic way to lead. That's a pathetic way to be. And we just have to do better. Yeah. Now, if we look back at the uh, at the story from the, the Spectator and, and your approach was um, was looking at it from an international lens that uh, Joe Biden had announced at the world that uh, with Australia's support, US and UK, along with other allies, had undertaken military operations at the time against the Houthis in Yemen. And, uh, and you wrote that the last time I checked, the Prime Minister was elected and paid to represent, defend and ensure that Australia's interests and national sovereignty were a priority. Um, Albanese, of course, went down the pathway of not answering the, uh, the real questions of were the reasons why he supported this military operation were they in our interests and if so uh, why were they made and who made them doesn't answer the questions I is this part of the situation now that there seems to be a lack of accountability uh in in the big decisions affecting our country oh, i think um if I, if I could suggest the real problem here and it's it's a very very big problem um is that anthony albanese stands up and says we're not going to send a boat. We're not going to send a ship into this uh, into this conflict. It's not our conflict on the surface. And then we hear from the American president that we were involved in in, in bombing the the Houthis. So it's almost as if they're wanting to do these things in secret. Now we we might see a lot of criticism on some former liberal prime ministers about their actions at different times through different periods with the information they had at the time. And I'm not going to go into the whys and wherefores of that. But Anthony Albanese and you know this the, the prime minister of the day. And the forces around him are almost trying to pretend we're not there and he's there so there's almost a dishonesty about this and that's the real problem come clean with the australian people tell us what we're doing and answer the questions as to why we're there and at least have that conversation have a national conversation about this so that everybody might understand why we're there and, and what we're doing the problem is is really that you know and, and i posited this in, in the piece that if the international shipping lane is under threat and and goods coming to and from Australia and other countries in the world are being impacted by, you know, the Houthis activity in that shipping lane, then I think it's right and just for us and all nations to send um, support to, this, to, to, that, to, that, to that shipping lane. Um, but don't go off and, and, and be involved in secret military operations and, 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 and not come clean with the Australian people because some parts of some of the electorates that, that you represent might not like the fact that we're doing it and then not admit it. There's a, there's a there's a there's a lack of integrity in that space and i think that's a big problem
Yeah, look, well said. You know, something magnificent about the political process, Matt, is that um, the people that get involved and for whatever reason, and we're going to get explore this after the break, um, that that are removed from the process, but the able to look back into with some sort of retrospective look, perhaps a bit of reflection, and 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 very clearly, I find it a lot with um, with uh, people who've had experience in the political process are able to analyse the way that you've done and point out in very simple terms complicated. Processes that have the general public scratching their heads that leads to a, a sentiment that kind of says why the opinion polls, you know, move in certain directions. And I think there that you've nailed something uh, very, very important that I do want to explore further after the break uh, in that process. And of course, Matt, you, you're not the only one, very skilled and talented, but I really admire this that uh, what I'm learning in this process in my role here at TNT Radio, interviewing different people in this political process, pointing out just as you did, very, very simple, but yet the politicians don't seem to understand and polling trajectories seem to move in that one direction. When they, when they shift, they, they, that, that's gone. And that's what we're seeing now, Albanese, in a big, big pile of, of doo-doo, uh, for want of a better term at this stage. What we're going to do is we'll take a break in a moment. Before we do, I just want to read something to you that last December, Julian Assange's two-day public hearing was announced for February 20 and 21 at the UK High Court uh, to determine whether Julian will have permission to appeal or whether he'll be extradited to the United States. TNT will be at the Royal Courts of Justice, broadcasting and covering the entire two days if required. Then TNT will broadcast from various locations throughout London, lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's news talk, TNT. TNT's Darren Denslow. Yeah, I'm talking about the illness. Actually, that has done, has been doing the rhymes. Not have we only seen a, uh, a mass influx of people waving their COVID tests online. Look, I got a red line. It's like, oh my God, people are testing. Or people, you know, trying to encourage others to wear their masks. Um, but there has been a talk of a dry cough. There have been doctors coming out saying we've seen loads of cases of that. Uh, have you been suffering from, you know, a bit of cough and flu or cold or COVID? Well, Darren, I, COVID. I, I just I just did my eighth test oh, and okay. um, I, I'm just going to keep doing it until I get lines and lines. Why? Well, because work's coming back up, isn't it? Digging deeper with D.D. Denslow on today's News Talk. TNT. JDRF's vision is to create a world without type 1 diabetes. The type 1 diabetes community is at the heart of everything JDRF does. We were founded by the type 1 diabetes community. In the main, we are governed by the type 1 diabetes community, we're energised by the type 1 community and we're accountable to the type 1 diabetes community. It's on their behalf that we exist and it's on their behalf that we must succeed. JDRF exists to rid the world of type 1 diabetes. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. So for us, that means rallying all the resources and all the people and all the organisations required to make that a reality as quickly as possible. The world's best researchers, exciting innovative companies and the passion of the type 1 diabetes community then delivered through the health system so lives get better every day, day after day, until the day we find a cure. To everybody in the type 1 diabetes community, no matter your age or stage with the disease, whether you were diagnosed recently or a long time ago, we need you to know that we are here working on your behalf to deliver a world without type 1 diabetes as quickly as we can. Thank you to everybody who supported JDRF in so many ways. You are making our vision of a world without type 1 diabetes possible. If you're talking about it, we're talking about it. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. 
Welcome back to Weekends. My guest this hour, Matt Camazuli, entrepreneur and a part of the Liberal Party, but he was expelled from the party for taking the former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, to court. Matt, can you fill us in on what happened? And this is a huge event. Yeah. Well, look, um, I believe in democracy. I believe that the Liberal Party functions best when it listens to its members. And I believe that the, as, as John Howard said, you know, the public always get it right. He might have, he might, <laughs> he, he, he might have briefly changed his mind for a very short period of time in, you know, seven, but, yes. but you know, he's been, he's, he's certainly been very consistent since then that, you know, you've, you've got to ask the people. Now, people inside of the Liberal Party join the Liberal Party generally because they are centre right. They believe in things like the Menzies, we believe statements, small government, freedom, capitalism, democracy, all of those things. And I happen to believe in those things very, very passionately myself. Um, and when when it came, there were a number of court cases and a number of other things and some games that got played, and I won't go into all the detail on that, but certainly when it came to the, the pre-selection timetables of, of certain seats where people like uh, uh, Scott Morrison and, and Alex Hawke wanted to sort of pick the sort of people that they wanted in Parliament on their behalf, um they got in the way of a pre-selection process and I thought that was wrong so I sued and 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 I sued because members should determine who their candidates are I believe a political party is a quality assurance system um it basically says I live in this area I know this person uh, they're a liberal they're a good liberal I endorse this person to be a liberal representative for me and for you and when you steal that right away from the members they start to get upset they wonder why they bother being in the party in the first place they they don't know why they're there and you know you're taking away all that great stuff individual initiative and all the things that we're supposed to believe in and uh and you're essentially clobbering them with what might be somebody might think is popular in a newspaper article based on some poll which is wrong um so you know i don't think the polling always does get it Right. I think the only poll that matters is the poll on election day. And I think good leaders can steer polls. And I think that good candidates can steer polls. And I think that you need to bring people along on a journey. Members of a party need to stand there on polling day and hand out for you. They need to be there at the street stalls. They need to be door knocking. They need to be handing out. And it's not just at election time. It's all the time. They are the representatives of the organisation to their communities every day. And you've got to enfranchise them and you've got to listen to them. You've really got to listen to them, Jason, because if you don't listen, um, you're not listening to your constituency, your core constituency, your liberal voters. So you don't expect to win if you don't, if you don't listen. So I believe so strongly in that, that, uh, that I sued with my own money. Um, and I, I did lose and I did get a cost order. I've now paid that cost order as well. So I've made the party whole. Um, and I'm, I'm not proud of the fact that we got to the place that we got to as an organization. I thought, we should have been able to communicate that out and do better. But, you know, Scott was secretly the state director of the uh, of the New South Wales division as well of all of his secret ministries. You know, he was busy trying to run the Liberal Party too. And so, you know, yeah, we, we sued. And um, I think it's woken the organisation up. If anything, they're now starting to have pre-selections, which is a very, very good thing. And we need more of them. Yeah. 
That's a, a beautiful answer there, Matt, because uh, in defeat, uh, in many ways, you've actually had a victory, a very costly personal um, process. Uh, the expulsion from the party as well is a big deal. Can I ask you, in not only the financial defeat that you, you suffered, uh, how did that make you feel that the party that you loved uh, didn't want you anymore for trying to do the best for the party? See, I don't believe that the party that I love doesn't want me anymore. I believe that certain power brokers in that party don't want democracy anymore. And I was just burned in effigy, as it were. Um, and it sent the wrong signal to the membership, me being thrown out, and even copying the cost order, and you know, these things are normally negotiated. What it basically says is you don't count. You're not worth anything to us, member. Just come out and hand out when we tell you to. And so that's that's sort of what I've taken from it. A lot of members have taken that from it as well. And that's why you know we're, we're getting every day getting stronger and stronger inside of the organization because I'm not asking for a rigged outcome for a friend of mine. I'm not asking for processes to be bent around to my will or the will of my friends. I'm simply asking for the constitution to be followed, for the democratic processes to be followed and for the local members in, in whatever area that they're in to get the candidates up that they want. And I think that's our best chance of winning an election. I really do. Maybe I'm crazy, right? Maybe I'm nuts. But so I don't I don't think it's it's about me. I just represented something. And I think that the party is starting to to turn on that set of ideas, actually. So, you know, and I'm I'm gonna continue to lean in because I do think the Liberal Party, as much as I have friends in other parties, is the only hope of fixing this mess that is the Albanese Labour government. And I think we have to work that out pretty quickly and do something about it, right? But if the Liberal Party is not going to be authentic and true to purpose, it's not going to win. It's very simple. It's very simple. It's amazing, yeah. isn't it, when you can summarise it just like that. But who would have thought that it's a strange the notion to have government of the people, for the people, by the people? I mean, goodness me, it, it just it just goes against the system. And I think that's where the problem is in uh, in society today is this yeah. breach of trust that happens to go on both sides. And, and this is part of this uh, process before we talked about the, uh, the, the very flip-flopping of prime ministers at the moment. And it seems yeah. that this is becoming a trend, uh, a, a very... Um, uh, disappointing trend that Australia can't seem to find anyone that they trust. To think that we went from what Rudd, Gillard, Rudd, uh, Abbott, uh, Turnbull, uh, ScoMo, um, Albanese. I mean, it, it's quite yeah. incredible. And um, one of the things I just bring up there that um, when we saw Rudd get elected in a landslide, for mine as an outside observer watching in, and I was involved with the uh, the ALP at that stage um, and Kevin 07 and that campaign, the moment that Beasley was replaced by Rudd, John Howard aged 20 years overnight because they had similar shaped faces and whatever. And Rudd just looked so much younger and sprightly. And it was almost as if Howard completely got blindsided, not dissimilar to how uh, Fraser got blindsided with the switch from Hayden to Hawke in the 80s. Uh, it, it just felt like it had that thing. But then... Um, I remember handing out actually uh, for the Labor Party and talking to the um, to the Liberal booth captain at the time and a young lady, very enthusiastic. And I said, uh, I think you're in a bit of trouble here. Rudd's going to win this one. Um, and it may well be that Brendan Nelson ends up your Liberal leader, which of course is what happened. This girl's jaw hit the floor. She couldn't believe that you could go from Howard to Nelson overnight the way that they did. But of course, Tony Abbott emerges as the opposition leader. And I have to say, still at the time, a, a bit of a lefty, I thought that that man was possibly the 
the greatest ever opposition leader in this country's history. What did you think about Abbott in that stage? Did, did that sort of fire up the party that they had the belief that they were a chance to win in just three years? Without doubt. I mean, I think Tony is one of the most misunderstood characters of the Australian political landscape today. He is a good, well-meaning man who I believe um, cares about Australia and Australians. Uh, and that cut through. I I think, you know, they were calling him the unelectable Tony Abbott and they were calling him every single name under the sun in the in the press. But the genuineness of Tony, the, the bush firefighter, the man who went and helped and still does go and help in, in Aboriginal communities because he cares, because he has a social conscience. The old DLP Tony, right, who, who, who wants to see the working Australians become um, middle-class Australians and middle-class Australians aspire to becoming wealthy Australians. I mean, this is the great story. It's, it's, it's sort of hard to hold a man like Tony down. So, you know, he, he, I think he did. He, he gave the party a great sense of hope, a great sense of opportunity. I mean, it really hurt. I was there when, when John Howard lost and just the sense of dejection. I mean, the, the, the idea around the place at the time, the traps was, you know, here's this inauthentic man who everyone thought was just trying to ape John Howard and say, look, I'm I'm just John Howard, only I'm a bit younger and I'm a bit I'm a bit smarter, I'm a bit smoother, and I say words like rolled gold and other ridiculous things um, that no one says anymore. Uh, you know, uh, but we do this in such a way that uh, you know, you you'll believe me and I'll be an, I'll be a, I'll be a sensible economic manager too, you know, and I'm I'm all those good things. And you know, he came in and he scared the absolute, you know, he scared, he put the fear of God into everybody. He terrified people. And Tony came out and said, well, look, yeah, well, you might say that, but, you know, I don't think Australia's buying this anymore, mate. And they weren't. They stopped buying it. You'll, you'll remember that Malcolm Turnbull's greatest success was making um, uh, Kevin Rudd the most popular prime minister in history, and Tony's greatest success was turning that round in about a fortnight. And it was on the threat of, you know, the carbon tax and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, we did get a great sense of opportunity and hope through Tony. Um, and... Things really did change in, in the organisation, but the New South Wales division did not like Tony Abbott very much. And still, you know, uh, to this day, um, the forces that were in the way of Tony is still in charge of the New South Wales division messing things up. And, you know, I just think that we have some problems in that space and there really needs to be some meaningful change. Now, just, just on that, uh, just for the benefit of our viewers and listeners, um, when we talk about political parties, within a political party, there are factions. Uh, and and in within the Liberal Party, there's the terms of the wets and the dries. Does that still apply? And if so, can you explain the differences? Look, um, we don't really say wets and dries anymore. I think there are three factions, as it were, officially, but I think it's really only two now. Um, the, the, the factional system would probably be laid out as the, they prefer to be called moderates, the right will call them the left. The conservatives who prefer to be conser called conservative and they get called the right or the hard right because there's this soft right, centre right, hawk right, soft left, whatever they are in the middle, which is Scott Morrison and Alex Hawke's faction, which essentially pretend to be conservative but actually always vote with the left on pretty much everything, including prime ministers um, and never, ever, 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 ever will they ever vote for a conservative leader because they just don't, because it's not in their best interest to. So they always transact with the moderates. So, you know, they're essentially just another arm of the left. Um, so there are really, you know, and, and, you know, you might have seen others, you know, Perrottet is apparently a conservative, Trudeau apparently a conservative, but really they always just transact with the left as well. So what you've got is basically a group of people who are transactional and who 
want to work in you know the best interest of the lobbyists and the path of least resistance don't really care about the rights of members and want to continue to put constitutional reforms up that aren't good for the membership and then you've got a group of other people that are just saying no that's enough i don't think we're on social policy lines anymore i don't even think it's a left-right debate inside the liberal party anymore it's now a new debate it's a debate where it's existential it's are the liberal party or is the liberal party interested in listening to its members in being true to its purpose in being true to the we believe statement we believe liberals or are we an organization or are they an organization that is more interested in helping lobbyists get their outcomes and the, that's the real fundamental question now and i think there's a growing sentiment inside of the party and it's happening more and more every day that it goes back to its base and back to its core fundamental principles of the we believe statement small government freedom freedom of speech opportunity etc etc and the we believe statement is definitely worth a read um and there are more people that want to go back to that and listen to members and just develop the organization around a set of governing principles that everyone can get behind as opposed to letting lobbyists run the show and have no no genuine purpose and and, and just try and sort of turn the whole thing into some kind of front for you know corporate interests investing interests and you know it's actually it is existential and i think unless the party more of the party actually says yeah no i'm we have to go back to our our core base uh, and our roots and stand for something we're going to basically cease to exist aka or allah western australia which is what happened there you know? yeah which just almost got wiped out it's remarkable, isn't it, that the political winds of change can be so powerful. And at the same time, uh, all political parties need new members and new blood and new interest and certainly generational. Uh, when you mentioned before about um, uh, freedom and success and all the things that, uh, and small government, et cetera, all the things that the Liberal Party believes in, uh, do you have to be do you have to be wealthy or powerful to join the party to sort of progress in it? Or can you still go through perhaps the young liberal system through university and get involved that way and climb the ranks, but still also be able to come in perhaps as an adult much later and go, you know what, I do want to get involved with this political process. I do believe that there's value in this. Is there still room for the average Australian to join such a party? Okay. That's a really good question. Um, when I joined the Liberal Party 2006, um, I was still in the very early formative years of my business. Um, and I was actually quite surprised. I thought that, that I, I wasn't many, I wasn't a great success. I was just the young, you know, just not long married. Um, I think that not long after that I had my first child, um, was building a business. Um, and I thought, I'm gonna meet all these really wealthy and successful people. This will be interesting. And I went to my first branch meeting and there was just a bunch of people that were just normal middle of the road Australians, I didn't come out of area and it's normal middle of the road Australians who cared about Australia. I thought, these people aren't rich. The Liberal Party is in a checkbook club. It might be in, in, in Wallara or Wentworth, you know, but it's not, it's not in, it's certainly not the majority of, you know, it, it, it's, it generally, you know, fits the character of this area. So yeah, look, I, I don't, I, I actually think that the best members of the party are the people that are just there to give something, not get something. And and the vast majority of the members of the Liberal Party are there to give something and not get something. Um, that's the problem that the people that are there to get something are finding. And that's why they don't want democracy in the party, because the vast majority of people in the Liberal Party aren't rich. They're not powerful people. They're just Australians who want to see the country go in a better direction. And everybody's welcome who wants to be a part of it. 
Um, and you'd be surprised how much you can do to affect change in this space. It really isn't very hard. Um, you know, what we put our intention to is what we do. It's what we change. It's, you know, and if, we, if, if we have a lot of people with the best of intentions coming and putting all of their intentions into this bucket, right, the bucket changes. And it's the only way to change the bucket. And more, more and more people are coming. More and more people are coming. And, you know, the, the vested interests find it very, very hard to develop branches and conferences because they've got less and less to give people. It's very simple. So, you know, the, as, as we fall deeper into opposition, what we're fighting now is just people who are frustrated with the Albanese government and who want to see the Liberal Party go back to where it should be. And there's a lot of people that want to see that. And to be honest, the Labor Party has problems too. I'm not here to speak to those. But, I mean, when, when I went through the court with Scott Morrison, our, Asma, uh, Diane Asmar and, and Anthony Albanese were going through the courts as well. Labor had their own problems with pre-selections and still do. Um, so, you know, I think it's a problem generally. We just need more good, normal hard-working Australians to join a political party. I don't care which one, just join one. Preferably the Liberal Party if you're a Liberal, but you know, join a party, get involved. It's not going to fix itself. And you can, you really can. Yeah, absolutely. Well, great, great answer to uh, thank you for the great question there. And I think it's uh, it's inspiring that people can realise that and I think it was what was it Alan Jones that wrote the line for Malcolm Fraser, life wasn't meant to be easy. Yeah. But there's, there's something uh, profound in, in being able to get involved and realise, as you said, going along as I did to a branch meeting, thinking I'm going to meet these powerful politicians, you go along to your local branch, and it's just uh, average Australians the same way yeah. making a contribution. But what's wonderful is in that process, you realise that you have this common interest and all of a sudden, Sudden, you feel like that one individual is now part of an organisation and a team and that expansion, that mental expansion, the political process. And it's not very long before you start realising that you are meeting, you know, government uh, MPs and ministers and, and party leaders at various different events. And, and sometimes it can be overbearing and then you realise that there's a, an internal hierarchy in all of this. But uh, the main part is that you're now involved with it. And as my branch president used to say to me, don't leave the party, fight from within, not from without. And that's a very very different process. Maybe people aren't up for the big, uh, the, the the big fight, as it were. But at the same time, it all comes down to what you believe in and being a part. What a great way to tell your grandkids! I was involved in shaping modern Australia in my prime, and I guess that was the motivation for me at the time to join. Now, Matt, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue this fantastic conversation. Before we do, did you know that there are many ways that you can watch or listen to TNT? Why not stream us direct from our website or your desktop, tablet, or mobile device, or download our app? From the App Store, we even stream live on X, YouTube, Rumble and Odyssey. We've got you covered on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Give me a minute with TNT Radio's Steve Malsberg. Ladies and gentlemen, it's the end of the week. So how about a little dose of Joe Biden at his best to get you through the weekend? Folks, um, uh, I, uh, if I were smart, I'd say thank you and leave. There's asylum, asylum officers. And over 100 cutting-edge inspe inspection machines to help detect and stop fentanyl coming out of our southwest border. Greedflation, shrinkflation. You see that article about the Snickers bar? Well, it's going to stop. America, we're tired of being played for suckers. We get thousands. Look, we, we, you know, we now have, we used to, before the recession, before the, the pandemic, Beer brewed here, <laughs> it is used to make the brew beer in this refinery. Oh, Earth Rider, thanks for the Great Lakes. I wonder why it's going <laughs> Cost 10 bucks to make it. 10 bucks to make it. 
We'll teach Donald Trump a valuable lesson. Don't mess with the women I wear. Now, normally this would be humorous, funny, you know? But this is a man who's president of the United States and looking for four more years on the job. It's frightening. Thanks for giving me a minute. I'm Steve Malsberg. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern time right here on TNT. I didn't ask to be thrown in the streets with nowhere to go. I didn't think I'd survive. But I did ask for help, and Covenant House was there for me. One in 10 young adults will experience a form of homelessness this year. For these kids who didn't ask to be put in this unthinkable situation, Covenant House is there. Covenant House helped me break the cycle of homelessness in my family. They gave me the love that I needed. Over 2,000 young people will sleep safely in a Covenant House bed tonight. When youth who are experiencing homelessness have a hot meal, a safe place to sleep, medical care, and love, they can overcome heartbreaking challenges and have a brighter future. They just really genuinely just wanted to help me succeed, and I'm succeeding. I'm a, I'm a speaker, I'm an author. Covenant House really helped me and really helped mold me into the woman I am today. If you or someone you love is asking for help, go to safeplacetosleep.org today. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. My guest this hour, Matt Camanzulli, and we are talking about Liberal Party politics. And what's interesting, of course, is that Matt and I were on opposite sides of the political spectrum over some number of years. Many people who were aware of my background started in Labor politics much later. I joined the party uh, around the time that Mark Latham recruited Peter Garrett was a big Midnight Oil fan, followed him for many years and figured that he was going mainstream and it was my time to put my hand up, get involved, pay my membership dues and go along to the local branch meeting. I was there for a few years, put my hand up to run for pre-selection for the seat of Greenway in Western Sydney and was soundly defeated uh, in that pre-selection. And I learned a lot about how party politics was played and the corruption that goes on within and the white anting, etc. And I never realised that my political friends could be my real life enemies. And it broke my heart in many ways, but I stuck in and I was told by some of the party elders that unfortunately this is the way that it's played and that one day it will be my time. And I thought, well, that's interesting and it's encouraging encouraging, et cetera, and I, and I went on further and further. But it was a bit later on when a state MP came uh, during that tumultuous period in state politics that uh, there was a number of different state Labor leaders. There was Bob Carr, the Premier, who uh, got up after 10 years and just quit the job. Morris Yemmer came in and then he was replaced quickly by Nathan Rees after he couldn't get a deal on the selling of the poles and wires in New South Wales. But when a state MP came to meet a branch meeting and said that I must support the dropping of Nathan, now for the fourth premier in Christina Keneally, I said that was a bridge too far. Matt, I just thought I couldn't do it. I realised that this was the puppeteering strings of a couple of the power brokers, and I even pointed to one of them that would be sent to prison for corruption. And of course, I was laughed at, but I was right. And that was my exit from the party. And I feel like it was a principle. I just couldn't go on at that stage. But my politics changed very, very differently from that point. 
I got involved, would you believe, with the hemp party uh, to support medicinal cannabis after my mother became terminally ill with uh, a cardiac angiosarcoma heart cancer. There was no cure. There was no treatment apart from some experimental chemo directly into her heart. And she was given a prognosis of, of around about 12 weeks. This was a very fit and healthy 66-year-old flight nurse who'd been in the business for 45 years and was basically told there's nothing else. And it turned out that cannabis extended her life by 12 months in the form of medicinal cannabis that we were able to get for her. And that party asked me to get involved with a little bit of political experience to run for them. And that's part of this bigger process. So like you said earlier, Matt, that um, don't, it doesn't matter what party you get involved with, just get involved. And that and that was that that whole story. Um, but political corruption, and uh, and we're sort of glazed over it a little bit because it seems that when, when someone wants more power uh, and then they have to go through different ways of getting it, uh, and in one case, circumventing the democratic process of pre-selection, that the members, the rank and file lose that. You've been fighting political corruption basically the whole way through. Um, does it bug you that we can't seem to make it more obvious that therefore it, it can be sort of wiped out completely or that we masquerade and pretend there's no such thing when it's staring us in the face? Look, there's only one way to deal with corruption, I think, inside of political parties, and that's to offset it with good people. The more and more and more and more good people you have in an organisation, the harder it is for people that are there for the wrong reasons to get what they want. It really is that it's democratic. It's uh, it's you know, it's about intentionality and making sure that you you just have a, a bunch of good people. I mean, look, most of society is not corrupt. Most of society is good. Most of society don't need the police to tell them not to steal or not to speed or not to drink and drive. We just don't want to do those things, right? So. We just got to get more of those people into organisations and it makes it very hard for corrupt forces when you have a huge number of free-thinking, strong-minded, articulate people articulating their points. They generally aren't particularly talented people, the corrupt forces in these organisations. You know, it becomes a protection racket for fools and, and dopes um, and incompetence. And they all circle around each other and they make fun of the, the, the people with talent and they make fun of the people with strength and they make fun of the people with money and those that can contribute. And they make fun of them because they're afraid of them and they're afraid of them because they're going to win. So more and more good people. It really is that simple. Okay, it's just that simple. So you're not going to get rid of corruption. You just have to bury it underneath a whole bunch of good people so they can't get their corruption across the line. You know, there's always grubs and there's always criminals. There's always corruption. But there are more good people. And that's the key. Yeah, again, uh, again, great perspective there and encouragement for people to say, okay, I know that what I'm getting into here, this is not pure, it's not perfect, but if I realise that within my heart and soul I need to make some sort of contribution, well, there's your invitation, and it's kind of jumping into the big pond now, uh, and any individual can go and knock on any political party and become a member and get involved with that branch process. Now, if we look at the um, the period uh, in that Albanese uh gets into power. And of course, there was one interest rate rise before he did, uh, but we've seen a, a procession of interest rate rises. Most people's um, mortgage rates have more than doubled in a period uh, since uh, mid-2022. 
we, we now see rental um, uh, prices uh, going up through the roof, inflation, uh, we're seeing power prices uh, escalating as well, confusion over whether or not your uh, petrol div powered car will be uh, outlawed perhaps in the future and people panicking about whether they can afford to hock themselves to the eyeballs to pick up an $80,000 EV, etc. What's happened to the Australian dream, Matt, in the first quarter of the uh, of, of the 21st century? Are, are we in trouble or is there a way out of this to, uh, to, to get back to some sorts of normalcy that people can go about the process of building families and paying off homes and 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 and, and raising their children i think uh this is absolutely a matter of political courage i believe the australian dream is on the ropes right now um it was already getting difficult you know, I'm, I'm a late 70s baby I'm so mid 40s now and it was already difficult when i was looking to buy my first home. It's nearly impossible now. Young people need hope. I want to see young people, people in their 20s now, aspire to home ownership in a meaningful way. Not just aspire to home ownership in, in that it's you know, some kind of hopeless pipe dream. I think home ownership is really, really important. It's the difference between slowly building a comfortable and um, you know, successful life, and you know, always be, and or be, always being beholden to other forces outside of your control. Renting is not as comfortable. Um, we're seeing rents go up though because of a housing shortage, which has been caused by bad policies from uh, I think a weak Liberal Party and a atrocious Labor Party. So, so we've you know we had a good Liberal Party, um, you know, at the early part of the of, of the last government. Um, and then it sort of slipped, and by the time we got to Scott and Scott's time, I mean, you know, borrowing a whole bunch of money and pouring it down a drain didn't really help uh, us get ahead uh, and, as a nation. And I think that we need to really see some solid change. And I think there are things that can be done, increasing the supply of housing, which is very, very important. Increasing the supply will bring the prices down. Um, doing things like um, looking at some of the red and green tape around the housing space as well is also so very important. So very important. Um, you know, we make we make software for the building industry. I'm very well connected into the building industry. I've spent a lot of time inside of the building industry. The building industry wants to solve this problem. They cheerfully, cheerfully want to solve the problems. But unfortunately, we've got some really bad government policies that get in the way of those 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 problems being solved and solved well. I think it's a matter of supply. I think that um, there's a lot that can be done in that space. Um, I think the government needs to start to look at how much it's spending. I think government spending is very inflationary. I think they could be sensible about that. And I think we have massive industrial relations problems in Australia, massive problems. Um, I think that, you know, the, the, the Howard era set a certain set of industrial relations uh, um, policies and, and that had been built on and built on and built on for a very long time till it got to the point where Howard did those final pieces. And then uh, Julia Gillard and Kevin Rudd and subsequent Labor governments and even Liberal governments have just trashed out almost all of that stuff. And now we're at a point now where, you know, we've got the world's highest minimum wage and we've got very little productivity off the back of that. So, you know, there've got to be some serious hard conversations with ourselves. And I think this cheap shot politics has to stop. And I think that's a question for both sides, really. You can't just have one side trying to fix it with the other side trying to give away free stuff at a million miles an hour, right? Like, we just have to have some maturity here. The country's going to fall off the edge of a cliff if both sides don't just grow up.
Um, you can't just keep giving away free things. You can't just say what's popular and what's nice. You actually have to take some medicine at this point. We're in a lot of trouble as a nation. We've got the interest rates are too high. Rents are about to spiral. They're talking about getting rid of negative gearing, which is only going to make rent go up more. We've seen that happen before. It's just silly. It's just cheap shot classist politics. And we need to see some serious relief in that housing space. And I think it's a game of supply. Just get more houses built. Make it easier to build more houses. That's it. Is it, possible, it is it possible for the construction industry to work on ways to lower the cost of construction? Is that even possible? Yes. Yes, it is. It's, it's, so look, the cost of construction of a, of, of a house is a percentage of the cost of the house. The land underneath is what's really expensive. And the reason land is ridiculously expensive is because it's restricted in its supply. So if the government at state level, starts to release more land, starts to look at regional development strategies. And I think we have to start making things here in Australia again as well. The world is moving, it's changing, it's shifting. Um, I think we need to look at regional development, industrial development in some of the regional areas, housing around all of that, you know, encouraging people to possibly move you know, out into some of the regional areas, which cheerfully have you, um, and uh, and also look at some of the you know more land releasing and being a bit more sensible about some of our inner rim urban developments as well, just increasing that supply, making it easier for more land to be more available. That brings the cost of land down and the cost of construction will come down off the back of that. It's really very simple because you can't build a house in midair. You need land to build it on, right? And if that's expensive, then the house is gonna be expensive. You know, and, and as, as we're seeing more and more, um, you know, supply, coming on in terms of, you know, it's getting easier to get bricks, it's getting easier to get timber. It's getting, we're not in this crazy peak of construction, which we were in before. Um, we're starting to see some of those input costs go down a little bit. So I think that will continue. That's a trend that I think will continue for a little bit longer. It's really the cost of land that's the problem now, and we need to get that down. It's really simple. And, yeah. and look, Australia's got more land than any country in the world available, and, and the regional process is uh, is very, very important. Of course, the decentralisation, moving away from the cities, requires some forms of infrastructure, but the idea mm -hmm. of fast trains has never really got anywhere in this country, which is uh, disappointing. Maybe it's because of the mass. It's different to Europe, of course. And the other part is um, uh, energy and, uh, and the resistance to look at nuclear power. So it seems that Australia has got lots of scope for a particular leader or leaders of leadership to be able to uh to open up the, the the great ideas that we used to think about in the past that this uh this great country seems to be sort of buckling under its own pressure in political correctness or wokeness or whatever it may well be uh and the idea that uh, we live in this sort of this this safety and convenient environment that that's always only what we ever focus on but at the same time to to make great advance you have to take great leaps in what you're doing uh to do it and it seems matt that you are poised in a position now um uh if it is that uh, you're going to get back into this political process and uh and and roll up the sleeves and get involved that uh, it's great green fields of opportunity does it make you excited uh in many ways that we're facing challenges but there's so many great possibilities that we can we can look for look i think we've had it too good for too long um i think that's been our big problem i think that's why we're in the mess that we're in actually people stop being worried about the real things that really matter um and started to have the luxury of worrying about things that either don't matter or matter less. So, you know, that's that's wonderful and all. But in reality, the exciting thing is that more and more people 
every day. And it, and it does suck that we're in a bit of pain right now. But the more pain we feel every single day, there's another person who's looking at their lot and their life and the country and saying, yeah, something's wrong. I want to do something about this. We've got to do something about this. And waiting for somebody else to do something about it is kind of going to be a waste of time. So you're waiting for a train that isn't going to come. You have to be the change you want to see. And if you feel pain and you feel like you're being drawn to help, it's probably because you're supposed to. So help. Really simple. Um, really is. So, yeah, I think um, it is exciting because people are coming to terms with the fact that they have to be a part of it and they're not just going to tolerate newspeak and other gibberish. Um, you know, I just don't think people are as excited about the sort of things that they once were because when the pain comes, um, you know, you've got to do something about it. Yeah, well said. Well, we've reached the end of our uh, time today, Matt. It's been a, a great thrill to be able to catch up and get into the nitty gritty of how it all works and to see you fighting like you always have for what you believe in. A great Australian there, Matt. Uh, and I'm looking forward to, to seeing you progress in the political circles. We're going to have to say goodbye. Thank you. And uh, and we're going to take news headlines and be back with a brand new guest after the break here on weekends. You're watching and listening to TNT Radio.